It's been a couple weeks since we were last in Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 3, so we're going to get quite a running head start. Uh, we'll dive into verse 15, but I want to read kind of the entire chapter to just kind of refresh where we're at before we get to our text this morning. Paul opens the third chapter of his letter to Philippians. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks that he could have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Paul writing, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, that if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. In verse 15 of Philippians chapter 3, Paul is transitioning He's transitioning from his warning to guard against legalistic thinking by constantly forgetting those things are, are, which are behind in order to press forward or reach forward to Jesus. Knowing that a, a work yielded through Jesus is the only way by which we become godly. Paul says, he says, therefore, or in light of the things that he's just talked about, if you are mature, or literally translated, if you desired this type of completeness, if you're desiring this work that only Jesus can do in you and through you, have this mind. It's emphatic. You see, Paul is not mixing words. Paul is saying that if you, as a Christian, really do desire the life that Jesus has saved you for, 
This type of mindset he's been talking about is absolutely essential. Every day, every minute, every moment, there needs to be a constant forgetting and reaching forward to Jesus and Jesus alone. You see, it is only the enthronement of Christ that will remove the crown from self. And friend, you're your worst problem. You see, it's only a full dependency upon Jesus that will yield a true and lasting godliness. As the prophet Zechariah wrote in chapter 4, verse 6, so many years before this, describing this very blessed life Paul's writing about, the prophet says, not by my might or by my power, but by the Spirit. Paul points to the Spirit. He says, this is what the Lord is saying. By the Spirit's power, we attain this blessed life. As a matter of fact, Paul is so adamant to this particular point that he borders on the sarcastic. Yes, the verse we read is quite sarcastic in the original language. This line, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you, it could be read as literally, if you don't agree with what I'm saying, give it time and God will testify that I'm correct. It's as though Paul is saying, if I can't convince you of these things, just give it time, because I'm sure God will. Nevertheless, verse 16, to the same degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Now, one of the themes that Paul is going to segue to as he works his way to the close of this particular letter is the basis for our Christian unity, which is logical because it's the same basis for our Christian joy. The basis of individual Christian joy, which is the reality of God's grace and the indwelling of the Spirit, is the same basis for why we should be unified. The reality of God's grace, the indwelling of His Spirit, should not only fill a person with supernatural joy, but it should create an unbreakable commonality among the brethren. Paul writes, to the degree that we have already attained, or or literally, wherever you personally are in this process of being sanctified by laying hold of Jesus, wherever you are, it doesn't matter. Let us, and by implication, Paul means all of us, walk by the same rule and be of the same mind. Notice as Paul's exhortation centers upon three things. Look at it. First, he he lays out a common direction. Do you notice that? He says, let us walk. If you're going to walk with someone, you're moving the same direction and and ultimately at the same pace. But, But we have this common direction based upon, he says, a common belief. The same rule, which is what in context of the flow of the chapter? The incredible, true gospel of God's grace and grace alone. It says, let us move in the same direction, holding fast to the same rule that our basis with God is on Jesus' work and not ours. That our favor with God is not something I have to maintain through my works, but something I should enjoy with each other. He says, have a common direction based on this common belief, which then should, should motivate a common determination. He says, be of the same mind. He's not saying we should be monolithic in thinking or that there can't be a diversity uh, 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 as it pertains to certain theology. 
But if we can agree on grace and the, the necessary indwelling of the Spirit, we have enough to be unified, even if there are certain other aspects of things we might disagree. If our common goal is pursuing Jesus and laying hold of that for which Jesus has laid hold of me, we have enough to work together. Consider this. If we're all individually pursuing Jesus based upon the amazing nature of his grace alone, walking together in unity should be the natural and logical result. Sad to say, so much disunity ends up occurring among Christians or within a church when instead of pursuing Jesus together, walking by the same rule or having the same mind, what happens? We each end up pursuing our own agenda or we end up falling into the trap of legalistic thinking. So often, disunity and separation, division, occurs when we either become self-consumed or inward-focused as opposed to looking to Jesus, or we depart, even in subtle ways, from God's amazing grace. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. In these verses, <clears throat> Paul, he does something very bold. He specifically sets himself up as an individual example that these Philippian believers could emulate and why does he do this? Well, according from the text, he does this because Paul understood that bad examples would fill the void. In the absence of good role models, bad ones would appear. And no, this is not the only time that Paul does such a thing. Twice in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul encourages them to imitate me as I imitate Christ. He does this in 1 Corinthians 4.16 and then again in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, before I continue... I want to make two important points based on this idea. First, the church, the church needs more men and women willing to boldly assume such a mantle. Willing to do what Paul did, to step up and set their lives as an example. And a culture that is filled with worldly influences, jockeying for such a position the church is in desperate need of role models, men and women who are willing to present their lives as an open book for younger believers that are trying desperately to figure things out. It's simply a truth that you, my friend, are spiritually healthiest when there are two dynamics occurring. A, you have someone investing into your life. And B, you're investing into the life of someone else. Everyone needs a mentor and everyone needs to be a mentor. I don't care where you are and your walk with Jesus. You can be a baby believer, a new Christian. You need to be healthiest to have someone you're reaching out to, someone you're investing into, and someone investing into you. It's essential. And, and by the way, this is what makes church life 
and subsequently church involvement so important? Here's why. It naturally affords both of these opportunities to take place. It affords opportunities to mentor and to be mentored. Personally, I am so thankful. Those words don't even do it justice. I am deeply thankful, honored, that God has placed through this church men in my life, men like Larry and Joe and Gary and Andy and Chad, men who have taken the time to open up their lives for me to see the good, the bad, and even the ugly, all the while teaching me the power of God's amazing grace and in whom challenge me daily in my pursuit of Jesus and the work Jesus wants to do in me. And to those that I seek to do the same, it is my sincere prayer that I illustrate the same truths that are being illustrated to me, and I mean what I just said. And writing to a young disciple, Paul, writing to a young disciple, um, someone he mentored, in Titus chapter two, verses one through eight, this is what Paul says. I think it's a good template for the church. He says, but as for you, speak to things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to too much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet and chaste and homemakers, good, obedient, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men, speaking to the older, to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Paul exhorts the church for older men to invest into younger men and older women to invest into younger women and there, by default, this street to go both ways. You know, one of the things, it's a, it's a pet peeve, and Jessica and I talk about it all the time. M more often than not, when a church has a, uh, like a mom of toddlers ministry, this is what it ends up being. A bunch of moms with toddlers getting together, sharing their, their collective no knowledge. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing, as you can tell. And the other moms are like, I have no idea either. And it's a whole bunch of moms who have no idea what they're doing. And you know what they need? They need a mom who's not perfect, because there isn't one. But they need a mom who's been there, if for nothing else than to be able to say, you're not messing them up. It's okay. You see, we need this type of community where older men feel a responsibility. The sad thing, and I think it's one of the great tragedies of Christianity today, American Christianity today, is we have young churches with a lot of energy and no wisdom, and we have old churches with a lot of money and wisdom and no energy. I love Calvary 316 because you look around this room and we have a beautiful assimilation of both. And I think that makes us very, very healthy. You see, here's the key. The key, find an example. <laughs> and then look to be an example. But there's a second point 
that I want to make specifically for fathers of sons. Never forget, with the, ex with the singular exception of Jesus, because Jesus can absolutely trump everything. No other man has the power to influence your son and his walk with God like you do. Fathers, you need to know that. A pastor, a mentor, a youth pastor, yes, they can make an impact, but that impact pales in comparison to what a father naturally does, especially in the life of a son. Because God, our heavenly father, took his name tag and placed it on you, you by default have an incredible responsibility. And I know this is heavy, but it's a truth. Your son will worship the God that you actually worship. Not the God you say you worship, but the one you do. As a matter of fact, sons don't always follow the directives of a dad, but they will always emulate the example that you set. You see, if you want your son to grow up and follow Jesus, you know the best way to see that happen is not to tell him to do it, but to show him how that's done to lead by example. If you want your son to understand the amazing power of God's grace, then you need to demonstrate, open it up for your son to see how powerful God's grace is making an impact in your life. If you want your son to treat his wife like Christ loves the church, then it is your responsibility, dads, to set an example of how that happens while that boy is living under your roof watching you. If you tell a son that attending church and studying the Bible should be a priority, I mean, you preach that it should be a priority, but it isn't a priority for you? What do you think he's going to do the very moment he's given the opportunity to make his own decision? I'll tell you what he'll do. He's going to join you on the couch on Sunday to watch the race or the game instead of coming to church. Now, you'd never say that those things are your God, but he's witnessed that it's the God you actually worship. You spend more time rooting for that sports team, more time wearing that gear, more time and energy and money and effort being a dog's fan than maybe your church. He will see it. Now, I, I, let me just speak personally. If you know me, you will know that I love the Atlanta Braves. As a matter of fact, I'm probably the only person that is still watching games 100 to 162 in a typical Braves season. They're terrible, and I still watch the Atlanta Braves. It's, it's a problem. I understand something I'm asking God to work on. But I absolutely love the Braves, and I am a diehard Dogs fan. I spent part of my week getting excited about Georgia having the number one recruiting class watching these five-star recruits come in thinking, these are high school kids, half of them are never going to play, I need to get a grip. But I love Georgia. Love the dogs, I love the Braves. Now what you might not know is that this, this has occurred in my life, largely because my dad is an avid Braves fan and a Georgia supporter. And I know that those two things are largely trivial, but I also want to point out that I love Jesus, and I cherish Jesus' bride, the church, 
And I've given my life to the ministry and I want to serve my community. And I am determined to remain faithful and to love my wife, Jessica. And I'm willing to make whatever sacrifices are necessary for my children and find character to be of the utmost importance. Why? Because this was largely the example for being a man that my dad emulated for me. Those were things I knew were important to him. And thus they became important to me. And as a dad of two sons of my own who watch and copy everything I do, I am so deeply thankful that my dad showed me Jesus and didn't just tell me about him. And watching my dad, even in his struggles and his failings, his shortcomings, I knew, I never questioned that his faith was real, and that the object of his faith, Jesus, wasn't theoretical. I knew Jesus was alive to my dad, and the implications for me were radical. Yes, we are all free-willed creatures who ultimately have to make our own decisions. And you could be a great father and your dad and your son still be an idiot, and that's not necessarily on you. But let me say this. Let me say this to dads with little boys. I don't want to be the type of father who tells my sons to be the type of man that I didn't care to be myself. Instead, I want as a father to be able to say to Quincy and to Theodore, sons, imitate me just as I seek to imitate Christ. You see, as Paul rightly knew, Dads, claiming such a role is so important. And here's why. If you're not interested in being such an influence for your sons, some other man will take your place. And you have no control over that. Once again, it would appear that in this section of his letter, Paul is simply reiterating a lesson and pen that he's already given in person and warning the Philippians about these bad influences. Look at what he writes. He says, for many walk of whom I've told you often. And now I tell you again, even weeping. Now, in order to understand who it is that Paul is referring to in this last line of this particular section of scripture, Paul describes these people as those who look at it, who set their mind on earthly things. This is the characteristic of who Paul's writing about. Now, though Paul began the chapter warning about legalistic Christians, and, we, and we've discussed this at length, these are people who adopt a grace and do these things, gospel perversion, or a grace, but don't do these things. All you need is grace and grace alone. It would now appear that Paul is warning against a different type of perversion. Instead of addressing legalistic Christians, now Paul is going to talk about carnal Christians, or what I would define as the grace so I can do anything type of perversion. Sadly, there are people who believe that since you're saved and sanctified by grace, and grace alone, that there is now no restriction on the things that you can do. The irony is that while these people do understand the freeing nature of God's grace, don't mistake, it is true that you can do anything 
as God's favor is presented independent of the individual. But tragically, grace gets warped in a different way. You see, instead of grace doing what it does, grace yielding greater holiness, yielding a sanctified life as it's designed to do, grace is seen as now a license for anything goes. Unmerited favor in place of sin, plus Jesus' complete forgiveness concerning sin becomes viewed as an unrestricted permit to sin. It's, it's what I like to call the Romans 6-1 heresy. Paul, in writing through Romans, discussing the amazing nature of, of grace, when you get grace, you will ask this question. Wait a second. So shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? Wait a second. So I get to do whatever. I could go out and sin. I could do all these things because of grace? Now, now while it's true that if you're worried, grace might become a license for sin. You don't understand grace. Never blame grace for sin. It's not what it yields. So if you're saying that your sin is because of God's grace, it's not God's grace and you don't get it. Like if you're worried grace can become a license for sin, you don't understand grace. But it's equally true that if you see grace as a license to sin, you don't get the amazing nature of God's grace. You see, if you truly grasp the true gospel of grace, period, you will understand that being sanctified and saved by grace, what makes it amazing is that it transforms who you are and therefore transforms now what you want to do. See, that's what makes grace amazing. I don't have to, to do these things. But man, I sure want to. A heart change has occurred. You see, when the heart changes and you enter into a love relationship with Jesus, your desires will naturally and organically change. You no longer live to please Jesus because you have to, or there's some restrictions on top of you. You live to please Jesus because my goodness, in the shadow of the cross and the incredible work he's done for me, why in the world would I not want to live a life that would please him in response to all oh, the life he's given me. Like, let me illustrate this point very quickly. The easiest way to tell if a single man is in love is that he will make all of the life changes his mom and dad have been harping on him to make for years like that. Like because of love. Overnight, this man will now become interested in getting a place of his own. He will be interested for the first time in maybe having steady income or health insurance. Overnight, when a man is in love, you can tell. Personal hygiene becomes important. I mean, his mom has been railing on that, but that woman overnight, man, it's a transformation. That boy starts showering daily. Starts using shampoo, not just a bar of soap, shampoo with conditioner. He shaves or at least trims up the beard. He buys deodorant, starts wearing it. You see, love, 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 
mom has been harping and laying down rules and laws, all this stuff for years. Has it done anything? No, you've resisted it harder. I'm going to be my own man. But as soon as you're smitten and you're in love, boom, overnight, everything changes. Love naturally transforms a person. You see, here's the truth. If the basis of your relationship with Jesus is grace so I can do whatever I want, not only do you fail to understand what grace really is, but I'll ask this. Do you actually love Jesus? Is that the question? Like, is that the reaction that love yields? It, it, it isn't. You see, Paul would say that such an outlook reveals you're actually making a mockery of Jesus' love and his death and his resurrection. And to those who would ask that logical question in Romans 6.1, shall I sin so that grace may abound? Paul immediately answers it. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Though Paul would fight tooth and nail against these legalistic tendencies of grace and or grace but, as it pertains to this grace so warping of grace, notice Paul's reaction. Is he out fighting? No, he's grieving. Like this breaks his heart. He writes, for many walk of whom I've told you often and I tell you now how? Weeping. Imagine Paul dictating this letter to Timothy. And as he's getting to this point, he starts weeping. He starts crying. In the presence of someone who excuses carnal living, under the pretense of God's grace, Paul weeps. Why? Because he knows that these people are in actuality, look at it, strong words. These people are enemies of the cross of Christ. And in the end, their God is their belly and their glory will be their shame. Paul weeps for such people knowing that this particular grace so I can do anything I want, outlook, so misses the mark that Paul just says their end, the end of this thinking, it's destruction. In the Greek, this word destruction, it can be literally translated perdition. Like the word is strong. The idea is a perishing, a complete ruining, a total wasting, utter destruction. In actuality, it's the, it's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 7, verse 13, when he said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Friend, never fall into the trap of believing that grace leads a person into sin. But also never fall into the trap of believing grace will excuse the life of sin you're living. Verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. For we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, what a line. Like Paul, he encourages unity on the basis of God's grace, by then adding, for we, our citizenship is in heaven. 
I love that. In the context of Philippi being a Roman colony, this Philippian church understood the core implications of what Paul is referring to, like what he's getting at. As a colony of Rome, understand, while Philippi was located in Greece, as a colony, the very soil of this city was considered to be legally Italian. Though they were located a thousand miles from the center of the empire, the Philippians, because their soil was Italian, they held the same rights and privileges of Rome. They were citizens, though they didn't live in Rome. When Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, he's not only saying that our home isn't on this planet, or that our ultimate allegiance transcends any particular country. What Paul is saying, aside from those things, he's saying that we are governed by a heavenly authority. In Jesus, we have been given, you have been given a heavenly citizenship, one that transcends any nation or color, party or creed. And note that Paul Does it use the future tense that this is something that happens once we die and we enter glory? No, Paul is using the present tense. This citizenship, it's not something we're awarded when we leave planet Earth. Instead, it is a status that we are bestowed the very moment we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Friend, think about it. Today, right now, where you're sitting, you are presently a citizen of heaven. How incredible. You know, over the last year, our society has had this national discussion as to what it means to be a patriotic American. Not only has the issue of what it truly means to be patriotic been argued at nauseum, but even what it means to be American has become contentious in context of the illegal immigration debate. Over the last year, I think we can all agree, this conversation about patriotism and Americanism has been nasty, politicized, and even polarizing. And though I want to be clear that I personally appreciate this great country that we've been given, and I cherish the freedoms and comforts and opportunities it's afforded me and my family. While I recognize our faults, but also its uniqueness in the context of world history, and believe that the honorable thing to do, even the Christian thing to do, is to demonstrate a sincere thankfulness to those who've served to ensure this crazy experiment can continue free of tyranny, I am afraid in this argument and this debate over the last year, Christians have totally and epically missed the point. Yes, we all presently live in America. Sure, I believe that we should participate to some degree in the political structure of this society because God has afforded us the opportunity to do so for no other reason. As it pertains to this land, and the leaders who've been elected by men, but let's be honest, ordained by God to govern it. The Bible tells us that we should pray for these elected leaders. No doubt, you can be active in the square, 
You can speak with the voice that God has given you, and you can and should stand for the truth because it supersedes the laws of mere man. But we should never forget, and I think we have, who we actually are. Well, I'm an American. May I never, ever forget. I am more than that. I am a citizen of heaven. Though I have a 30-year mortgage on a house in Monroe, Georgia, my home, it's not there. My home is in heaven. We all have county commissioners and state representatives, a governor, two senators, congressmen, judges, a Supreme Court, and a president. But may we never forget our king sits in heaven where we are all today citizens. Now, in this debate about American patriotism, Christians, I think, have lost sight of the fact that we're called to something more than just that. We're called to a heavenly patriotism. We are first and foremost citizens of heaven. Who cares if you're a Democrat, Republican, Dominican, or Republicrat? Who cares, really, in the grand scheme of eternity, whether you watch Fox News or MSNBC? Who cares, in the end, if you're a natural-born citizen of these states or an undocumented immigrant seeking a better life? Who cares if the president is a Kenyan named Barack or a secret Russian operative named Trump? Who cares? Seriously. I look around at this world going to hell and I take solace in one incredible reality. I'm a citizen of heaven. You see, this is what should make Christians in the church not only unique, I'm going to use a word, it should make us downright dangerous. Not only is the church a colony of heaven because we are made up of the citizenry of heaven, but our ultimate allegiance isn't to party or country, it's to Jesus. As a citizen of heaven and a colony on earth, our focus shouldn't be, shouldn't be on trivial issues that don't really matter in the context of eternity, but our focus, friend, should be on two amazing realities, two aims. We're to be, one, eagerly waiting for the Savior, Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And two, we're to be actively making disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. The most dangerous force this secular world should be concerned about isn't the illegals jumping a fence to invade a chunk of earth. Or for that matter, who's arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? But they should fear a group of foreign citizens seeking to win the world for Jesus Christ. You know what? China, China gets it. China understands that the greatest danger their society faces, it's not capitalism. It's Christians in the church, which is why they're actively trying to purge their country of both. Christians in America, I think we've missed the point. When we spend our energies 
trying to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth as opposed to making lost earthlings citizens of heaven. It's a difference. Once again, I'm not advocating apathy or isolationism or fatalism as it pertains to politics. And yet, how so quickly we forget. This is going to be a tough pill to swallow. We forget the fact that the fate of America will be identical to the fate of the rest of the world. America, there will be a day that we will be destroyed. (laughs) So it's a good thing that you're a citizen of heaven and your king, his name is Jesus. As we close, I want to look at this passage from a bit of a different angle than I just did. Paul, he makes here two incredible declarations about Jesus and about what Jesus can and will do in your life because of this citizenship. First, look at the text. He he says, as your savior, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform this lowly body. As a matter of fact, Paul continues by saying, your body will be conformed to his glorious body. Now, how incredible is it to consider that this lowly body, or literally in the Greek, this vile body that exists, and by the way, its lowliest state it ever will because of sin, will one day, according to Paul, experience a radical transformation. In the original text, there's only one word that Paul uses here that we have translated as both transformed and conformed. A better reading would be literally, Jesus will take our lowly bodies and transform them into the same form of his glorious body. That's what Paul's saying. Now, not only does the wording imply that our physical bodies will experience a transforming, so thorough, by the way, that we'll literally be created, transformed, reformed, using a completely different schematic. That's what the word means. But Paul is telling us that our physical state after this occurs will be similar to what we saw in the post-resurrected Christ or what we saw in Jesus' body post-garden tomb. Now think about that. The new body that Jesus will give you in eternity will be human. You'll be able to recognize you as you. It'll be a body composed of physical matter that you can touch but one that can appear and disappear, walk through walls, teleport, fly, still fill with food, which I think is awesome. And beyond all of this will be a body that will never die and one that you will live in forever. That's what we get by looking at Jesus' resurrected body. And while that's amazing in and of itself, and if you're experiencing the breaking down of this vile body, that should encourage you. It won't always be that way. But Paul also says, look back at the text, at the very end of the chapter. He says that Jesus, as your Savior, is able even to subdue all things to himself. I want to close by marinating on that. I think of everything Paul said, that, that might be the most profound in the entire chapter. Like Though in the context, Paul is saying 
that Jesus' strength, that Jesus' might, his ability to do even this transformation of your lowly body knows no limitation, which means as wrecked as this body will be, Jesus can fix it. I'm glad. This word subdue, it's a fascinating word. It means to arrange under, subordinate, to put in subjection, or to place under one's complete control. And that, my friends, possesses an immediate implication for us all. In light of everything that Paul has been discussing within this chapter, this statement, Paul closes with a promise. See, what Paul is saying is he's saying, and don't miss this, there is literally nothing that Jesus as your Savior and Lord does not have the ability to subdue or to put under his control. Think about it. Paul is saying here that there is no struggle that you will ever or could ever face that Jesus isn't able to overcome. There is no fear that you might face that Jesus isn't able to calm. No insecurity that he can't master. No sin he can't provide you victory over. No wound that he can't heal. No addiction that he can't liberate you from. You see, friend, Paul is saying that there is nothing in this life you will ever face that Jesus isn't able to conquer, to subdue. You know, while legalism, legalism ultimately fosters failure. Why? Well, you can never be good enough. And the flesh possesses no power in and of itself. Not only that, but in your own energies, you probably know firsthand how quickly things can spiral out of control. You make a miserable God. But what Paul is saying here is that if you lay hold of Jesus, if that's your aim, if that's your focus, walking with Christ and walking with other people who are walking with Christ, if that's your focus, Jesus is more than able to subdue all things to himself. The lesson, if you're striving and trying and working and failing, Jesus is right there saying, I can subdue all things. Why don't you just let me? You see, friend, give up and grab hold of your Savior, for he is more than able. So, Father, Lord, with that promise,